going to observe communion today after the message. And it's a, a very important time for all believers in Jesus Christ to fix our eyes on Him and to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that He uh, gave in His very life, giving His very life for us. And so um, as we go through our time here today, um, let's be uh, keeping this in mind. And uh, even the things that we've sung, um, the truths that are there, it's good to be uh, repetitious with some of these things. I know for us, we, we need that repetition uh, for who He is and the fact that He is the one true God. It's a joy to be with you this morning in bringing the Word to you. Um, let's, let's begin with prayer right now. Lord, you're the author of this book, the Bible, that we hold. Lord, we need to learn to count it as more and more precious, count it as our treasure that we have from you. Um, Today, Lord, please speak to our hearts. Help us to push away the distractions. Help us to be um, focused, to be looking to you. Thank you for your good work and what you'll accomplish, what you will accomplish here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. School started this, what is this past week? Two weeks now. Ha, I've not been in school. Uh, no, but school started here in town and so, uh, just like, um, you young people that are in school classes here, you get to look forward to more and more school throughout your life. And it's beyond the classroom, okay? So uh, those challenges that you faith, face with your teachers and new projects that you've never kind of been with before, they're good. They're, they stretch you. And just like in school, uh, yes, you college students too, right? Uh, you're getting stretched. This is good. And this is what happens in life. You get stretched. You get challenged. This is what happens as a Christian, more and more you are um, going through these steps and processes of, of learning about what God has for us. That's, in one way, um, what we're dealing with here this morning with Acts chapter 17. And I've entitled this message, Turning the World Right Side Up. And the reason is, everything you go look at, it seems like everyone calls it Acts chapter 17 and summarizes it by turning your world upside down. You stop and think about it. How did it get the way it is? God designed His creation to work right. Man, in his ways, in his selfish, rebellious ways against God, has turned things upside down. And we, as believers now, really in practicing and understanding and, and applying and practicing the truths of the gospel, we help things get turned right side up. And so um, we see here this morning in Acts chapter 17, the continuation of this second missionary trip or this second missionary journey that Paul and Silas and Timothy are on as they leave Philippi. They travel southwest past a place called Amphipolis and Apollonia and uh, most likely because those places 
those two uh, cities that he mentions here in Acts chapter 17 most likely didn't have synagogues. We're not sure of that. But he did travel on to go to the capital city, Thessalonica, that we were used to calling it that. Um, I believe it was originally called Thessaloniki. But they, they go on to this capital city and there's about, uh, they believe there's around 200,000 or so in that city at that time. So Paul and Silas are going deeper and deeper into this Macedonian region and eventually they will arrive in Athens, the philosophy capital of the world. So we're going to consider these three stops on the gospel train ride in Acts chapter 17, Thessaloniki, Berea, and Athens. So I um, put before you this outline that you can find in your, in your bulletin, and um, we'd like to uh, start with reading verses 1 through 9. So now th- when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security or as a pledge or as a bond from Jason and the rest they let them go. So, at this first stop in this part of the mission trip, number one is the turning point in Thessalonica. And we see in verses 2 and 3, they follow the road map. It's the road map to follow. It's clear that we are to see Paul's method at each stop. When he goes into a town, he heads immediately to a local synagogue. Connection is with those who are familiar with the worship of the one true God and with the Old Testament scriptures. So it's a familiarity thing there. But not only going into the synagogue, quickly he turns to the scriptures in order to reveal the truth about the Messiah. They're familiar with the Old Testament. They're familiar with the readings and such. But Paul now introduces the the gospel the fact that Jesus had to suffer, die, and then rose again from the dead. And this led to the reasoning aspect of talking about the gospel, the reasoning, explaining, and giving evidence, which I find very interesting. 
the giving of evidence in it. We believe that there are still people there alive, not necessarily um, with Paul and Silas, or yeah, Paul and Silas and Timothy, but in the Holy Land, there are still people who had seen the risen Savior. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. You know, there are still some 500 witnesses out there. They've seen Him. And so, that effort to, um, uh, again, simply give evidence to these folks that are bound by the Old Testament law and to open up their eyes to the Scriptures, the fact that the Old Testament Scriptures are pointing to a Messiah. And this Messiah would suffer, die, and rise again. So, they headed to a a local synagogue, they turn quickly to the Scriptures, and then they drive home the point of the Gospel. Okay? Now, that's something, folks, that you and I can do. You and I can do that. We can, you know, look for familiarity with people. And then we can go to the Scriptures and tell them, do you know, here's what, you know, the Scriptures say. And we can point out the Gospel. That's the, that's where we're going with this. And that's what we want our people here at Parkside to, that we learn to do that more and more and more. It's not that, you know, we're expecting people to go off to seminary, all of you. No. The point is to grow in the things of the, of the knowledge of God to be effective tools in our community. Mission work. Mission work. Here in Fallon, in Churchill County. And the more that we, as a collective group, are learning these things, the more we can be used of God in this community to help turn people to the Savior. So, there's a road map that they followed in letter A, under number one. Letter B, the results that follow. He was there, Paul and Silas were there uh, for three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. Starting in verse 4, it says, And some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And then it's interesting why this is added. And a number, and a number of leading women. Okay? That's, I just find that interesting. He could have just said a number of God-fearing Greeks, male and female. But then he adds this. And so it's interesting to consider... With all, as with all big cities, uh, their leading women, you know, big cities have, you know, here's their, their leading women. Uh, they're really all prod, products of the culture. That's not a bad thing. That's just, that's the products of the culture. The upbringing of the culture. And the influence of Athens, Athens was quite a ways away, but still, their influence spread, Okay. And uh, as we're going to see towards the end of this message, their influence was with all their idols. But two female deities in particular that were very popular, very well known, Athena and Aphrodite. Now just take this, thinking of this uh, detail of and leading women, leading women of the Greeks, with the understanding of Aphrodite and Athena. If you didn't know, Athena is the goddess of power and war. Aphrodite is the other side of the spectrum. Here's the the goddess of love and sex and pleasure. Okay? Put this together and think of it. Think of what our young women in Churchill County grow up with. There's a status symbol issue that typically comes around. 
You can grow them up in, a, in the fear of God and, and encourage them about, you know, living for Jesus. But there's still the pressure of the status symbol of looking just right. The, the right look. The right hairdo. The right makeup. That stunning look or whatever. Here's, here's that, that side of the status symbol. Here's the other side, you know, power player. Right? Learning from the world is the pressure that's on our young people. So there's two choices for these status symbols, so to speak. Pressed into one of these two molds. You ought, you ought to be pretty or popular and popular, or you've got to be powerful and persuasive. You think about that. That's not a stretch. That's what our young people are dealing with. And maybe even some of us who are way past school days... Think about it. What is the status symbol that we want? The status symbol of the kingdom is what we want. And this is what happened. Here's some leading women who came to faith in Christ. So the status symbol of the kingdom ought to be Christ's righteousness, right? Christ's righteousness in us. That we understand that and grow in that more and more and more. That that's my identity. Young people, that is your identity if you're a believer. That ought to be your identity. I'm found being in the righteousness of Christ. Not just being a good person. There's all sorts of good people out here. You know, in our community. All sorts. Some very, very religious and if it came to that standard, it might be that, you know, they beat us out on goodness. And so, we need to understand the key behind the gospel is the righteousness of Christ. That's our status symbol. That's what we want to grow in, okay? Our identity is in Christ. So, praise the Lord for this little line, this little statement, the leading women that turn to faith. Number two is the benchmark of the Bereans. So that's where they're going next. Now, I know there's a lot more that can be said about Thessalonica, by the way. Paul wrote two letters, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and they, he commended that church. He commended that church for receiving the word amidst much tribulation. Interesting. Well, think back to Acts chapter 17 in that. But they move on. Because they're, they're really forced to. They gotta get out of town. And, um, so, they go, and here's verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, th- these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. There he goes again. But, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, so they departed. Okay, so... Letter A, number two, is a noble-minded reputation. These folks in Berea had a noble-minded reputation. They demonstrated a, a level of respect for what Paul's message was about. 
Okay? They had a high respect there. Which led to, letter B, their noteworthy reception of the word. They had a noteworthy reception. This is what they were famous for. How they received the word. Verse 11 stands out. It's in, you know, plaques. Uh, you know, it's, it can be found in pictures. And, you know, they examine these things. And my friend, you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. This verse ought to be true of us. To receive the word eagerly. To re- I would add to receive it in a humble way. In a hungry way. Okay? Receive the word that way. Whether you're on your own in your room or your bedroom or wherever, or you're here at church, learn about receiving the word with eagerness. A lot of times we get into the habit that, oh, oh yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. And then we can, you know, turn into critics. Well, I, I heard that message preached by Pastor Brennan, and that was much better by him. You know, th- those kind of things we get to critiquing. And it's important that we examine and see if these things are so from the Word. Rather than being more uh, along the lines of judging how it's brought forth, or how this Sunday school teacher does, or this connect group leader does, or this Bible study leader does. Receive the Word with eagerness. So, they move on. Paul has been uh, transported... And uh, here's where we pick it up for point number three in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so this begins, point number three, the adversity in Athens. I even thought of putting the absurdity in Athens. Uh, that relates to what we're going to be seeing here. The absurdity in Athens. And we see these, these three um, initial areas of concern. Number one in letter A, the idolatry. Obviously, he says that the city was full of idols. Another way of uh, guys that translate it, think of it as being under idols. The city was under idols, referring to the city was under bondage to idols. It was that extensive. Paul was uh, agitated, if you will, suggesting that, you know, here's, here's this, uh, just a, an, a mass of idolatry there. This is not just a couple of statues, folks. They had basically around 3,000 statues at that time. Some 3,000 statues of idols. Not to mention what would have been found in personal residences. Just a plethora of idolatry every which way you look. Why? Because they, they were like just saying, well, let's just, just go with this mindset. Um, we like this, or we like, you guys like this, and on the south side of town, you guys like this, and so let's make a god out of it. And we all sit here in, in our modern day and say, oh, how silly that is. That's ridiculous. Stop and think. Stop and think. There's all sorts of things that you and I worship. 
as we get sidetracked and distracted away from the one true God and the resurrected King Jesus, we get our eyesight set on other things and we subtly, quietly, under the covers, so to speak, start worshiping things that we should not be even going towards. So, it begins with idolatry, but letter B, it moves on. <laughs> and by the way, I, I wanted to mention this. I, I, I've not done a whole lot of travel around the world, but the places that I've gone, I went to Mexico with a group, and um, I was just uh, utterly shaken by the uh, idolatry. And you say, well, idolatry in Mexico? Well, guess where we visited? We visited fancy-looking Catholic churches. Now, if, if you're here from a Catholic church and visiting, I'm sorry, but here's the problem. There's a lot of idols in those buildings. They turn Mother Mary into an idol. They've got the little baby Jesus. That's an idol. They got all the saints or whatever. That's idol worship. Now, we don't run quick to judgment about that, but that's what it is. It's idolatry. I went to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. Surprisingly, the same thing. Here's places that have been kind of labeled as this is a Catholic territory. And what's there? Here's these you know, things hanging and uh, statues put up and all. And we just have to be discerning, okay? Just because it's a called a church doesn't mean that it's rock, you know, rock solid and on target with the things of God's Word. We need to be discerning. So in both cases of my going to Mexico or my going to Jerusalem, in both cases the idolatry was from a church that we're familiar with. A denomination. And so, Paul, you know, he is speaking out on the resurrection of Christ. He didn't go attacking the idols. He promoted the resurrection. He proclaimed the resurrection. Think of that. He didn't go in saying, you guys are such, you know, evil people. No, he addressed them with the resurrection. That's idolatry, letter A. Letter B, the philosophies. The philosophies. Real quickly, I mean, this could go on as a major point also in the, in the understanding here of Acts chapter 17, but he, the writer Luke, he, he uh, addresses two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were the ones that would be the ones of pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry, um, hedonism, okay? Um, they denied God's providence and sovereignty. Their idea was just, you know, pleasure was their chief good. And then the Stoics. The Stoics were more about uh, not so much enjoying life, but endure. you got to endure. Toughen up. Life is, it's fatalistic. And that led to this clash of worldviews. This is important now. It led to the clash of worldviews. That's what this builds up to. Paul got invited by the philosophers. Hey, 
this sounds like it's new stuff. It's pretty cool sounding. Let's, let's go to Mars Hill and we can debate. And it's just like they just wanted to hear something new. Let's hear something new. I mean, after all, we got 3,000 plus idols. Why not add another one? You know, let's, let's uh, get into, um, let's get into Jesus. And this idea of the resurrection, that, that sounds like another cool God. So the idolatry and the philosophies then leads to, letter C, empty speculations. Or endless speculations. Why? Because you could be there on Mars Hill and try to convince these intelligent people, educated people, and, you know, it's just, well, that's, that's nice that you can address that. You, you did a really good job. You used really good language with addressing that and all those kind of, that approach, right? But I'm, I'm still going to go with the God, you know, whatever, the goddess or God, whatever I, I, I'm a part of. So, the idea of the speculations in letter C, it's endless, it's empty. Um, Mars Hill was known for its intelligentsia. The philosophies going on that were, the ideas and the debates and the speeches, always open to something new if you are a part of that crowd. Why does Paul respond the way he does? Let's look at this. I think it's in verse 23. We go down to verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. Yeah. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay, so um, there's some people that think he's complimenting them. I don't think he was complimenting them. I think he was really getting a dig at them. But obviously they're very religious. But religious doesn't mean they're right with God. And so it is in our day and age. You can come across and start talking to someone that appears very religious. That doesn't mean they're right with God. Because the gospel is about right with God. Righteousness of Jesus in your life, applied to your life. Is the righteousness of Jesus applied to your life? Or are you dabbling with other philosophies? Is your worldview split up five ways to Friday? What's your worldview about? And so Paul just drives it right home to one thing. Let me tell you about God from the Word. And that's what he does. Paul simply, confidently connects with them with the attributes of God. He's focused on God's attributes. And he says in verse 23, what you worship what you worship as unknown or ignorant, this I proclaim to you. Follow along. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made... From one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from 
each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So with that, we want to zero in real quick with Paul on what he's highlighting here. The attributes of God or, or the names of God, the descriptions of God. He's the creator, obviously. He's the creator. God, he's the God who made the world and all things in it. You wonder if back in that day they had, uh, you know, the idea, how, how'd the world come into existence? Well, Paul's declaring, proclaiming that God, this God is the creator. Then he is self-sufficient, verses 24 and 25. He's self-sufficient. There's no need for a building or a temple made with hands. God does not need us. There's no need to supply God with anything. Verse 25, he's the provider. It's amazing. Sometimes we just don't connect there. We just think, oh, I just get my other, my next breath from being healthy and uh, having a good strong heart and good, good uh, upbringing. What does that verse say to you? What's your worldview? Is your worldview saying that you got it together? Or is your worldview saying that God's given me life and breath and everything? He is, in verse 26, He's the sovereign ruler. He's the Lord of the nations. And there's going to come a day when all the world leaders are going to bow before the King of Kings. And all the, all the pomp and circumstances for, for world leaders is going to come to nothing. Why? Because they stand before, they kneel before the true King, King Jesus. God's the sovereign ruler, the Lord of the nations. Then, verses 27 through 29, He is near and knowable. He is near and knowable. He is, I love this title, it's a book by Francis Schaeffer, and it's called, he is there and he is not silent. And my friend, if you're searching for God here, you're, I, and I mean that seriously, if you're truly searching for God, He is there, He is not silent. He is near and He is knowable. He is accessible. And you can know Him by reading the Gospel of John or any other book. If you just say, Lord, teach me. I'm searching. Speak to my heart. Or are you going to get caught up with the thousands of philosophies that are available that have no end to it? I mean, it's just endless speculation. You've got proof right here in your hands. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God. But no, no. In our intelligentsia, we say, no, I, I don't think so. And we doubt it. Well, yeah, there's some difficult things to be challenged with. Of course there are. But the Bible keeps coming back saying, God has said, the Lord says, Jesus says this. Here's the, the truth of the resurrection that will stand before all as the hinge of it all. Are you going to challenge the resurrection? 
Well, there's been some people that have challenged the resurrection. Guess what? By challenging it, they came to the knowledge of the truth. And they're believers in Jesus. So, he's the creator. He's self-sufficient. He's the provider. He's the sovereign ruler. He's near and notable. And knowable. And notable. (laughs) Got a tongue twister there. And then there's not only the focus on God's attributes, but the warnings for all. And it's the call to repent. The call to repent. And Christian, before we move on to its its purpose here, Christian, we need to remember, we don't just, uh, oh, I did that long ago. I've said this before, Pastor Brennan said it before. It's not a matter of, oh, we... We repented long ago. We're okay. No, we continue walking in faith and repentance. Why? Because I keep sinning. You keep sinning. And I need to practice faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Has anyone got to the place where you don't need to confess your sins anymore? (laughs) We've got such a beautiful, wonderful Savior. Let's turn to Him by walking in faith and repentance. Okay, So that's the call for the ungodly to repent of their sin. You, if you're here, you're not a believer. You, you must repent. You must. You're called to repent. And we would love to talk with you about that. Because, verse 31, there's the promise of judgment. This is a funny thing. You know, here's what he says in verse 31. uh, Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's the resurrection again as proof of his, he will judge the world. And it's funny, it's like a lot of us sit back and we say, yeah, go get them, God. We want you to judge the world. But if it came to me, I don't want, to, I don't want that. I don't want to face that. We, we want judgment for everyone else and all the bad guys. But see, God will do a thorough job of judgment. And by the way, He will do a righteous job of judgment. There won't be any flaws in His judgment of the world. And so that will bring glory to His name. We got a, on one hand, we got a stinking world that we're living in. There's a lot of nasty, nasty stuff out there. Evil, actions, evil things that people do. And there's going to be a day where God judges that. And Jesus already died on the cross some 2,000 years ago and He took the judgment that was directed at you and He took it on Himself. That's called propitiation. That's what He did to rescue you. Are you saved from the wrath to come? Are you? Please, Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, wrap it up here with the conclusions. Based on this quick, really fast-paced tour, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, there must be a priority and passion for the message of the gospel. Don't get 
side, uh, don't get taken away off to the, off the road to other things, tradition, or here's my church experience from 20 years ago or whatever. No, stay on track with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point of the gospel is not merely look forward to heaven. Those of you that are saved, you looking forward to heaven? Yes. Amen. And sometimes that's our only, that's our only, uh, Praise about salvation. It's just about heaven. No, it's not. It's much more than going to heaven. It's about you becoming more like Christ in your life right now. Okay? And so the point of the gospel is beyond just beyond getting us to heaven. It's about applying its truth every day in our conduct, in our conversation, in our thoughts. For faith, repentance, to die to sin, to be buried with Him, and to rise up in newness of life. That's the gospel. Die to sin. Romans chapter 6. Die to sin, be buried to it, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ, and walk that way. Not just think that, but live that way, walk that way. There's the gospel alive in you. You know, along with this, it's, it's Romans 1.16, for I am not, what? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's how you and I get to being transformed in the image of Jesus. Also, the maturity of the believer, the progression of maturity in the believer. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. There's where Paul commends the Thessalonican church about their receiving the word and growing. They turn from idols to the living God and they're waiting for the coming of Jesus. We always want to acknowledge that God is doing His good, good work to build and form Christ-likeness in His children. Specifically, that there's a development. Here's where I get back to this term, the worldview. Your worldview can be convoluted with worldly stuff, worldly philosophies, and we need to say, Lord, help purify my thinking so that my worldview is more in line with the gospel of Jesus. So that... I, I'm pursuing being Christ-honoring in my life with my words, with my thoughts. Christ-exalting in my behavior. Christ-centered. Being like a Berean. So examine it. Examine it for yourself. What's your worldview like? Is it more like the Jews who sought signs? Or is it more like the Greeks that sought wisdom? We're called to live out the gospel. Like Paul, like Silas, like Timothy. And you say, oh, I'm never going to be a Paul. Yeah, you're never going to be a Paul. But you know what? If we're thinking of it in this term, you can be like a Jason. Did you catch Jason in this text? Jason welcomed Paul and Silas. He joined in. He was part of the fellowship of believers. And guess what happened to Jason? He got dragged through the city. Tried to be abu- they tried to abuse him and scare him and intimidate him. You know, don't, don't just always think, well, I'm not like Paul, so I can't share the gospel like Paul. Well, that's a cop-out on our parts. We need to learn to be people that learn to grow in the things of the gospel. So, 
may this be a reminder that we're all in school learning more and more about a God-centered, Christ-honoring, Bible-centered worldview in Fallon, America in this day and age. Okay? A worldview that's on target with Jesus Christ.